This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Foundation by Story Archives. I am your host, Mario Busto, alongside Zachary Newton, your other host. Welcome back. We are back with season one, episode seven, titled Mysteries and Martyrs, and Zach, thank you so much this morning for sending me a text that said, hey, man, um, most episodes are kind of dense, but this one is <laughs> is pretty uh, light on the note taking. Like, there's not a lot going on. And I'm like, Zach, OK, last time you said that it was a heavy episode. He's like, no, no, this one, I promise. <laughs> this is probably the most dense episode of the season so far. <laughs> Maybe I just underestimate the way that you take notes. Were you being serious or were you trolling me when you said that? I mean, there wasn't that many different things that happen in this episode, but I get the oh. the depth of what happens in the yeah, episode. Harry Seldon simply uh, reanimates himself into a digitized quantum yeah. version of himself. I mean, what's um, what's special about that? I yeah. just did that last week. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm sleeping of- right now. This is like an avatar or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I actually thought. Um, the show's like really coming into its own at this point by episode seven. And like so much so that, I mean, this is a rewatch. So like I'm I'm more invested now than I was upon the initial watch. And I'm like, actually, the fact that I have to pace watching episode eight and nine and 10, thankfully we're rushing to get these out so we can catch up yeah. for next Friday's premiere. But nonetheless, I mean, I'm really into it. I love the way everything's unfolding with, you know, the storyline of all of the emperors to, mm-hmm. uh, to Harry. Like now I fully understand everything going on with the Harry timeline. I feel like... I watched this the first time and had no idea what was actually going on. Yeah. I now feel like I know how Salvor fits into this and why she's special. Um, and then I also, we also get a lot of clarity on Emperor Don's fears of being caught by his older brothers mm-hmm. and that there is actually a plan to replace him. And I feel like I'm just remembering all of this now. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think... At this point in the season, I I agree. I I feel like I'm starting to get a better sense of the bigger picture and what's going on. Maybe I like Harry a a little more than I did before. I I feel like we've been bashing on him quite a bit, but um, I I need to see where where this goes again. It's it's been a while uh, since I've watched it the first time, so I don't fully remember what happens uh, up next, but I kind of I, I'm like liking him, the more round picture. I, I kind of like him a little less after this because it, it's confirmed all of my thoughts about him in lots <laughs> of ways. I find myself liking the motherless atrocity that is Emperor Day. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe it's it's psycho history that I'm becoming more okay with. I yeah, saw, I'm, I'm cool uh, with it now. Yeah, I saw a comment from somebody, and I I, th- I I like it. I think it helps kind of explain a little more of like the mindset that you have to have when you're thinking about psychohistory. And that is that psychohistory is much more of like, it's statistics, right? Like that's really what it is. So so there are some outliers, like there will be some things like that, but you're not really, you know, seeing the future or anything like that. Yeah. If you want, you can pull up. We have a really diligent uh, YouTube commenter out there who uh, 
is who knows his stuff about uh, foundation. You know, I will gladly say more than more than I know. They seem to be really uh, diligent into the series itself. Mm-hmm. And if you want to pull that comment up, we can we can mention it later. He's left like three comments that are really good. Um, we can either do that now or we can do that on another episode. But it's gonna have to take um, me a minute I'm to blank, find. I'm so. blanking on their name. I'm seeing their thumbnail in my in my head, but I am not seeing their name. So yeah, there's a lot of names going back and forth. So maybe maybe we can find it and you know attribute the uh, context, like a psychohistory, uh, to the uh, let's steal to the, the credit. Left the let's, let's steal the credit. Let's not reference him at all. <laughs> and he'll comment and be like, what the f- is going on here, man? No, no. but in all seriousness, uh, to, on the same topic of listeners out there, we want to thank you for tuning in to the Foundation series that we are doing here. It's, we're following up our silo coverage, which just finished last week with the finale, and we just wrapped it up with a deep dive and a finale mailbag episode. We thank you for that journey. And if you're lucky enough out there to have not have watched the silo series on Apple TV, I'm very jealous of you because you get to experience it now, not week to week. But you can binge through 10 straight episodes, and then you can listen to our commentary along the way if you'd like. And if you're not liking that show, or if you are done with that show, you can also tune into our Black Mirror coverage that we're doing, as well as our surprise bonus coverage this week that we did of Hijack on Apple TV, starring Idris Elba. And we did a mid-season recap, but we're going to do probably one more episode to wrap up that show in like three or four weeks from now. Okay, let's get into the episode recap. Lots of stuff going on here. Everybody gets a little bit of love in this episode. You get some love for Salvor. You get some love for the freak that is Emperor Don. Uh, you get some love for Emperor Day. You get some love for Gale and Harry. And I get some clarity about what the hell's going on with Harry and just how far along he has planned. But we do begin episode seven with the continuation of where Salvor and Hugo are heading on the beggar alongside Farah and her crew of Anacreon terrorists, which is to the Anthor belt. And the coordinates of Emperor Torellian's crown jewel, the Invictus, supposedly the most powerful weapons platform back in its day through a series of sort of cheesy exposition lines that are given in this ship. What are your first thoughts of the Anthor belt and the Invictus, Zach? Well, it was some very cheesy lines, but one might say the Invictus was a planet destroyer, right? Sounds like a Death familiar. Star. Like a Death yeah, Star. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what it comes. I think anytime someone's like, yeah, it's a planet destroyer. That's the I only think, thing that pops in my head. S- and somebody's going to come. They're going to say, more like the Death Stars, like the Invictus. Exactly. Because <laughs> this was written before. <laughs> they, might, <laughs> you know? they might use some expletives in there, but yeah. Yeah. I want to say uh, when I make fun of the exposition, it's simply on the basis of I find Salvor being a little too chummy with mm-hmm. the people who just terrorized her planet in a way that resulted in the death of her father. And she, I just find others. her a little bit too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Chill? Bit. Just like, yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. It's just like your dad just died trying to fi- fend these people off. And this woman here is a maniac and somewhat stupid. I got to say, Farah, she's not logical at all. She, Rowan saves her ass about two times with her mm-hmm. impulsive, hot-headed decisions. In fact... One of the most dumb decisions, one of the dumbest decisions in this episode is the fact that as they're seeing the Invictus, okay? Yeah. They are, the plan is to do this 10,000 meter jump that everybody needs to stay within the width of like two, what did, what did he say? Two, two meters? Uh, uh, I think it was like two meters. Something in, like that. Yeah. With like distance from each other so that the defense system doesn't pick up. And what does Farah do? She kicks like spartan kicks 
Salvor off the ship. Yeah. This is the person who your ship, in order to get back to whatever planet you're going to, she is biologically tied to this ship. Yeah. You think Hugo is going to cooperate if Salvor dies? And mind you, the reason I say it's stupid is because she literally points out the window and says, hey, yeah, the reason we know the active defense system's on is because we lost a ship and we lost several people here because they yeah. killed them. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was very dumb. I mean, I guess you, you re- they really have no uh, no uh, option but to continue at this point. I mean, well, if if Salvo missed uh, just a little bit, just a little bit, almost did. Yeah, well, it turns out Salvo's intuition about Farah is correct. She has no remorse in her heart at all about anything that she does. She's, she's hopeless. She's literally on a suicide mission, which we find out later in this episode, what their intention is with the Invictus. It's a suicide mission to pretty much destroy Trantor in the same way that the planet of Anacreon was destroyed. Yeah. Um, in a very interesting way. I have some questions about the Invictus and what it's going through here, but let's jump a little forward here because the only way, they've kind of planned this thing perfectly, right? They've brought a little bit too perfectly. Like, how do they know the logistics of this ship? I mean, this is a planet full of barbarians on an Acheron, as we're being led to understand. Like, how do they know the ins and outs of this ship to the degree that they do? But they've gotten specialists from the foundation to join them, enough for each little section of the ship that they need to get through. Mm-hmm. And then they've commandeered the commander to use his nanobots that he has in his, uh, his skin, literally in his blood, mm-hmm. so that they can get access to the ship. Yeah. I mean, I would love to have some nanobots like that. I'm just saying. I mean, I Why? mean, come on. I, if I get a I, if I get the paper cut, I wanna. Oh, you want? I want that thing to heal right away. Like that's yes. pretty impressive. I like that. It's yes. like uh, it's like the Wolverine from X Men. Yeah, it is pretty convenient. My only thing is, is I'm assuming the nanobots mean they can track you as well. They can. Yes, they they are. You are able to track through the nanobots, and in addition to the nanobots, see uh, the, the captain has some sort of like relay in his or some like beacon in his head or something like that that's going to help transmit if he gets to some yes yeah yes yes yeah. well the, yeah the plan here is that the commander if he can get to um a re- i forget what room he said he needs to get to but he has a distress beacon in his head pretty much that he can alert the empire that something's gone wrong so yeah. the plan is for him to get into the ship and be able to set that thing off which mm-hmm. the way we've seen these ships enter into different systems I think we can, it's sure to say that somebody would come pretty quickly to this spot. Yeah, I I would imagine. So, especially if they know that they've got the, uh, the Invictus here, I, I'd, I'd be moving as quick as I could. Yeah, well, for such a precarious dive as it is to literally do a 10,000 meter jump across space to land on the exact portion of the ship you need to here. Yeah. Um, they all make it and survive, except for Hugo, who almost comedically drifts off into space because <laughs> the way the face looks on the mask mm-hmm. uh, in this episode, I don't know if they're going to improve this, but it's slightly humorous the way they kind of look like big heads. Yeah, they kind of do. It reminds me, what was that? What, Shark Boy and Lava Girl yes. <laughs> movie back in the day? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, they're not the most aesthetically pleasing uh, space helmets. Simply no. because their faces look ma- like almost magnetized, uh, the same way like so. You ever see somebody with those glasses that makes their eyes look bigger? A few times, yes. Yeah, yeah. something yeah, like trailer, that. Trailer Park Boys. Yeah, like that, that kid's <laughs> I great. Like the character from there. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, this jump, I mean, we've had a few people mentioning the show uh, For All Mankind, this whole jump without giving away any spoilers, reminds me a lot of a scene that we see in uh, in an episode of, of For All Mankind. It brought back some memories. Yes, it does. Which, by the way, uh, as far as we know, Hugo is dead because yeah. I don't think anybody comes back from just drifting into space like that, but... I mean, I we don't see him in the rest of the episode. <laughs> Which, once again, like Salvor recovers pretty quickly from Hugo just drifting off into space. Heartbreak is not a thing, my friend. Not well, in space. Farah says she, there's no time for it to swallow her grief, yeah. Warden. Yeah. So I guess that means, you know, just suck it up, right? Also, if I were going into space for the first time, I feel like I would just be like mind blown by everything that I'm seeing out there. I mean, Salvor's grown up on Terminus her entire life. It's the first time she's left the planet. Yeah. As far as I know. Well, speaking of planets or moons, uh, on the Maiden, we get an interesting little dynamic going on between Emperor Day and Demerzel, where Emperor Day is pissed at Demerzel really for bowing to the mother at the end of Hal Halima's, Zephyr Halima's speech in the last episode, um, which she says she's bowing to the mother, but that brings into question her loyalty to the Empire. Like, is her loyalty to Luminism or is it to the genetic dynasty? Yeah. It was interesting, though, that her body, I mean, she says that if it were something she was not allowed to do, her body would prevent her from even performing the act. But uh, do you what buy do you that? think about that? Do you, I was going to ask you, well, what do you, do you buy that excuse or is it just like a convenient I mean, truth? with technology that I've yeah, seen like, today, I mean, if you think about just general computers and like systems, you know, like AI applications and all that, like they're programmed to not do certain things, but if you tell them to do it a certain way, you could do it. Like, what if, what if, I don't know, what if she's just like thinking to herself, ah, well, you're the, tired. The key question <laughs> in this first confrontation between them is not that she kneeled, is whether she wanted to kneel. Yeah. And she, they are conveniently interrupted by one of their, um, I guess their assistants who tells them that Halima is now no longer a challenger because after her impassioned speech where she pretty much uh, was poking at the emperor half throughout mm -hmm. half of it. Uh, she is now the front runner. She's no longer the challenger to uh, yeah. Zephyr Galat. And now the emperor needs to find out what she wants from him. Because now, I, in my opinion, in this episode, she has the upper hand in the negotiation at the moment, considering they have, a, I think, three or four trillion followers of Luminism. And she's about to be the pope of that religion, pretty much. That's a lot of followers. Though there's, I think there's a lot more people on Trantor, right? No. Trillion? Really? There's not? There can't be four trillion people on Trantor, Zach. There's just no way. Well, I'm going to find out. Um, I wanted to bring up something that an emailer put out there. And I, we got a reference and give some credit here to our emailers. You guys have been terrific on the fun facts, but I am blanking on who sent this one. Uh, Cleon's name. Is it an anagram? Uh, is that the term for it? But it That's is. The term. It, it's an anagram for the word clone, which is interesting uh, that, they would, that they would do that. But it's pretty it cool. is. It is very interesting. I kind of like it. I, I, can't, I can't not see the word clone now, though, when I, when I look at yeah, it. Every time I see it written down, I'm like, I feel like I'm reading it wrong. It should be cloned. <laughs> In this episode, we get introduced to the concept of this sacred ritual that only happens when a pro an opal proxima passes, which is called the spiral. And it's this long walk that these followers of luminism take so that they can humble themselves before the triple goddess. It's like this, they pretty much go to encounter God, uh, the God of luminism, right? Mm -hmm. And day goes down to this sort of medical tent that Halima's at that she is tending to these patients 
who have attempted the spiral and it looks like they've attempted it unsuccessfully in a way. Yes. Yeah. I find that like when, did you find something, Zach? You look like you found something. I, I mean, there's, there's a few different, I mean, I'm definitely way off. I'll, I'll say that much, but yeah, I think there's like somewhere between 40 billion and, you know, later on in the series there, there's more, but I mean, 40 billion gives us a nice little, uh, little baseline there. Yeah. Um, just slightly off. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. It just feels like such a populated planet. I mean, I, I guess it? I just, I mean, to me it does, right? Like it feels like I'm looking at Coruscant. There's just layers and layers and layers. The, on, the only reason I thought it wasn't is because it looks like the earth itself is only inhabited by the genetic dynasty. It doesn't look like many people inhabit the actual earth, that they're, mm. they're relegated more to what the tower was or whatever was left of the tower, so to speak. Gotcha. The scene at this medical tent is is one of something that you would think you'd find in the middle of a desert. The people are emaciated, they're suffering, you know, they got these uh, sun blisters on their face from walking this, this spiral. Mm-hmm. And this whole scene is really about, there's sort of like a lot of subtext going on here, right? You have Day who's there to try to find out what Halima wants from him. And then you have Halima kind of like virtue signaling, like, oh, I'm such this religious figure and I don't want anything from you. I don't preach about anything that I don't believe in. And she's pretty much going after him for being a soulless creature and saying that her ask is that he ends the genetic dynasty. So much so that she pokes at him and says something very similar to what Harry Seldon says to him, but in a different way. She calls, she says, you're the reverberation of a dead man's ego by nature, blind to all it lacks. The soulless creature cannot recognize itself. And then I wrote a little side note because, you know, I love Harry so much. I put, isn't that the same case for Harry? He, his prophecies, the reverberations of a dead man's ego, and now literally his existence are the reverberations of a dead man's ego because he yeah. is now literally a digitized version of himself. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. I think uh, this whole little trip is a little dangerous for Day. Seems like a, like a high risk. I mean, high risk, high reward, I suppose, but... I don't know if it's a difference in acting skill, but Day also has to introduce certain concepts. If you can pause here or rewind like 15 seconds back to the previous scene to get the visuals there, uh, you can pause. Uh, he also has to introduce things like the concept of the spiral, but he does it more smoothly. And mm-hmm. then the show pulls it off in a way where Halima jabs at him saying like, oh, I see you've prepared. You know, it's in a way that it integrates the fact that it's such a, it's such a canned line that it's something that a politician prepared to say. And she pokes fun at it, which I thought was an interesting way of introducing the audience to the concept of the spiral, which will become important later when mm-hmm. we find out what the emperor is going to do with this bold strategy of his to, to fight back uh, against Halima. But, yeah. um, and also interesting in the sense of self-discovery, but I wanted to mention something here and, and get your thought on it. The point of this spiral is it's, you know, bodily suffering, you know, it's like uh, fasting or, you yeah. know, um, the story of Christ in the desert, 40 days, 40 nights, you know, that, that type of, um, you're denying the body, the nourishment mm-hmm. for an encounter in a way, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what the believers are doing in this show when they take this walk. But she asks Demerzel, have you taken the walk before? And Demerzel says, yes, at, a, at an earlier time, she had an opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. But would she actually really be able to appreciate walking the spiral, being that she's a robot? Does she have any of those needs? 
And would she be able to actually experience some sort of truly transcendent spiritual experience? I don't think so because I don't, I, I mean, I don't know that much about her and like what is going on inside of, of this machine. But I mean, I would assume that she's enabled to really feel pain, like physical pain. Though it looks at times like she experiences emotional pain a little bit, which is which is interesting to me for, for a robot. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that she would be able to, to fully appreciate it. I, I mean, I, I think you do have to go through some suffering uh, to, to, you know, feel what you feel on the other end. Yeah, that's that's what I sort of found interesting about that. It wasn't really discussed, but felt like it was under the surface there. Uh, the scene sort of sums itself up with they promising safety and clean water while Halima pretty much threatens him with the power of, of her followers and just how many there are out there. And then she ends it with a nice, just one more jab where she says, I have souls that I need ministering to. So much sass, man. Right? It's just like, all right, I get it. I don't have a soul. Like, shit, I didn't, cho I didn't choose this. You know, yeah. I wish Cleon would just be like, you think I chose this? Yeah, really? You know? I was bred for it, man. I, I think it's like an insecurity of his that he doesn't truly know if he has a soul. And I find that's what's going to be so interesting to see him walk or attempt to walk the spiral. Mm -hmm. We're going to find out, does he have a soul? Can you actually even answer that question by doing this sort of thing? Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, based on what we learn about individualism, right, of, yeah. of these different clones, Emperor Don is not like the others in the sense of pretty much anything as he confirms to Azura later in the episode, yeah. which makes me wonder if there's like an individuality to him and maybe they're not actually full-on clones, but... Well, I mean, if it was, I think it was a couple of episodes ago, maybe last one, I can't recall, but there was this room where you would walk by and you would see like these, I guess, plaques of the different uh, Cleons of the past. And it would be like the painter, the gardener, the whatever. Like, so they did seem to have this individual element of them. Like they, they didn't all have the exact same interest or hobby, right? It seems like they traded off between a few things. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested to know maybe that they all hide these differences because they're scared of being surveilled in some way, you know? Yeah. So we head back to the Invictus. They actually have this moment where they are able to deactivate the defense systems of the ship. And perhaps one of the most illogical decisions Farah makes in this episode is she <laughs> shoots the commander in the face before entering the Invictus, which to me is just that, I mean, no pun intended, but it blew my brains out. Like it was just like literally, <laughs> you just blew my mind, you know, M2. no offense, RIP commander, but um, it was one of those things where you, you're telling me these barbarian Anacreans know the ins and outs of a ship, a ghost ship that disappeared 700 years ago. It's like the Black Pearl from Pirates of the Caribbean. Nobody's seen this ship yeah. other than rumors, okay? And just for a moment. And you guys have had the ability in a destroyed planet to understand that you're not going to need this commander's help to access other parts of this ship? Mm-hmm. You know, you have this weird ability to always mention like the Black Pearl or yeah, I brought Jack Sparrow the twice right the after episode. I watch it. Like I just watched again it last it again? night. Oh, and I didn't catch the last movie. I think it was what uh, Dead Men Tell No Tales. So I, you know, I, I yeah. caught like a little bit of it in Saint Augustine, and all. we're like, all right, let's let's finish it and see how it is. But yeah, I was last time I watched it. You you mentioned it too. It's just funny. Yeah. 
Well, they enter the ship and they find this very delightful, welcoming party of dead corpses everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. That looked like they were m- murdered in some way, but I, I could be wrong about that. We do learn a little bit about their their fate as a crew in there, but according to one of the Foundation specialists, there must be some sort of hole breach, and so the first order of action or to-do list item here is to turn the environmental systems back on. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they look like they were murdered individually so much as yeah, they just, maybe they- something exploded, they lost pressure it they froze and you know something automatically shut and sealed but uh they they look like nice ice cubes to me yeah a little little terrifying to be completely honest yeah just a little ominous uh personally speaking when they turn this environmental system on which adds oxygen to the room Mm -hmm. that's a little bit too soon for me to be taking off my suit seriously and for you to be pharah and be the first one to take off your helmet yeah (laughs) yeah it yeah I'd have been like, hey, you, uh, take it off. Does yeah. it work? Did it work? Show me. Yeah, you, uh, comrade or person yeah. that I don't need. See, if, you know, don't shoot the commander in the face. Make yeah. him take his helmet, you know? And you don't know what's sure. in the air either. Like, okay, sure, you, you re-enabled systems and all the bodies dropped to the floor. But yeah. is the air clean? Is it poisonous? We still don't know what no necessarily idea. happened. Yeah. Unless this suit has some way of telling you that everything's a-okay. Somehow, yeah, but, but they did I, like if that were the case, they sh- they would have shown us. Maybe, maybe it would it would have been like, a, oh, yep, oxygen yeah. levels are at ninety percent. Yeah, it would have been great. Like, is this the, is that the suit A three hundred? Yeah, it tells us all of the oxygen readings in the room and tells us if there's any harmful contaminants in here. You know, give us some sort of exposition there. Yeah, it was used by the uh, captains of the Invictus back yeah, in the day. It's yeah. the crown jewel suit of Emperor <laughs> Trillions. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Louis Pyrene, for all the crap we've talked about him being the leader of the foundation and, and pretty much uh, bringing the downfall of this welcoming party to uh, Vanacrians to his planet. Mm-hmm. So Harry was right that he wasn't capable of dealing with this first conflict, but it's true. Uh, he's able to calculate that these pulsating lights that turn on in the ship are a countdown to something. And Farah now finally admits what they know, which is that the reason the ship is a ghost ship for the last 700 years is that it jumps. It has a jump ship technology. Mm-hmm. And so it jumps to random coordinates across the space. And that's why this crew died. They probably ran out of food and turned on each other because mm-hmm. they couldn't control the ship from jumping from one place to another, which leaves them, according to Lewis's calculations, just four hours to get this ship under control before it jumps to whatever godforsaken place it may go to next. Yeah. You know, I mean, the... the- Having the ship jump around to random places is it's kind of a nice security feature, but <laughs> yeah. don't you think that there would, I mean, I feel like there should be some beacon or something like where the Empire could go find it, but uh, maybe that got destroyed. Who knows? I mean, it was 700 years ago, so who knows what happened, but did Farrah mention that her crew saw the ship jump? I think, I think it jumped like into view. Yeah. Like... I mean, I don't feel like we got a super detailed picture of it, but I feel like the ships were just kind of there and then it jumped into to where they were. And I'm assuming that that's, you know, it turned on them and opportunistic. They, uh, yeah, I, I hope that's what she said, because I thought she was saying that they saw like they saw the ship and then it jumped like somewhere else and then it came back. And I was like, no, what are the odds that this thing could jump back into the exact same spot that they saw it? At? It's like mathematically impossible. Yeah, no, I, I I think they saw it jump in is what she meant by that. I don't think she like 
saw it go away and then come back at all. So that I think they just happen to be in the same area. Luckily. That mission they had on on the foundation terminus planet, uh, it needed to be pretty fast because they know they knew that the ship was going to jump at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they did move pretty quickly. Yeah, I, did they leave any Anacreon soldiers behind on Terminus? Do you think? Uh, they had to because all the corvettes yeah, were destroyed, so. right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they left. I think the only people that left the planet were, were Hugo, Salvor, and, and the uh, people with him. Yeah, if you can pause for a second. Uh, back on the Maiden, the Emperor hits Demerzel with an I told you so about Halimo, where he says, well, after all that now, uh, what do you think about her? And she's kind of taken aback. Like, this is the leader, potential leader of her religion, right? Mm-hmm. And she took her words as a direct threat to the Empire. And so, she kind of freaks out and says, you know, we need to increase security at the palace and blah, blah, blah. Well, Day seems to have already calculated his next move while also remembering the words of Harry, who he gives credit. He says, Harry predicted this, an exhortation from one of the galaxy's major religions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And good job, Harry. As we know, Luminism is the largest religion. So I do wonder how many other religions exist out there in this in this uh, world of foundation. I mean, I'd imagine there's more than there are on Earth, and there's quite a bit here. So, yeah. Well, he's determined to prove both Harry and Selden wrong, and I, um, Halima and Selden wrong, mm-hmm. because he refuses to play defense against this woman. I think in Day's perspective is, why am I going to play defense when I have no idea how they can strike? I mean, there's so many of them compared to me. I have to be the one who strikes first. And so, you can hit play. He does something bold. He actually goes to the court and calls her out. He pretty much lets all of the people there and tries to control the public opinion of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, Tells everybody what Halima has said to him directly, that she has called him soulless and incapable of growth and that he disagrees with her. And so, in order to prove who is right or wrong here, he's going to pretty much take it out of his own hands and decide to attempt the spiral himself and appeal to the triple goddesses to find out, according to him, what is what he says, what is true, who is right, and who is wrong, and let the spiral decide. Interesting stuff, considering this is an emperor who wears a bracelet that prevents any sort of harm from coming to him. So he is now going to take one of the most arduous journeys known in the galaxy probably yeah and also this is all while he has broken tradition with being the first emperor day to leave the planet usually it's dusk Mm -hmm. who goes out on these envoy missions yeah definitely don't think he would make that walk on the spiral but you know it's it's very it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline very interesting i mean this is a very risky move for him somebody that has you know lived on a single planet and assumingly pretty comfortable conditions forever meanwhile these people who live on this uh this moon this planet uh walking the spiral go blind got blisters they're, they're all kinds of messed up so what did you think of um the decision to take the spiral like what was your initial thoughts and how do you how do you like it as a plot point for for day's growth i mean i think it's like if 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 he can do it right like it's an intelligent move 
because you're you're kind of you're circumventing Halima, right? Like you're going above her. And if you can appeal to the triple goddess, right? Mm-hmm. If if the triple goddess is okay with me, then who are you to interpret her her willing incorrectly? Yeah. Now on to Emperor Don, who seems to do nothing all day but wander the palace in his pajamas. If that's like all we see of Don. I mean, he's got a nice work from home lifestyle going on. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would call it work at this point. All he does is really look down from his balcony and spy and on his little flirt. love interest gardener girl, Azura, you know? Great stuff. Yeah, well, he actually ends up losing his virginity to Azura in this episode. He meets up with her after she leaves him a little uh, rendezvous message in the mm-hmm. in the flower pot, which made me think, you know, as they're having sex in this episode, can Empire get, get somebody pregnant? Hmm... I have no idea what kinds of birth control they have in this um, universe. So, I don't know. I would assume, yeah, but maybe those nanobots are programmed to do something. Not quite sure. Yeah, well, in his little intimate moment after sex here, he lets her know that it's not just his colorblindness that's different about him and his brothers because she brings him like these little color adhesives that could help him see red and green. Mm-hmm. But it's everything about him from the way his thumbs clasp right over left and the way he finds Brassica bitter and the way he puts his shoes on differently and everything pretty much. I stopped writing everything he was saying, but everything is different. And we find out that his entire life is to be a perfect copy of his brothers. He is yeah. pretty much not to be different in any way that is noticeable. And yeah. we understand why when he takes Azura to see the Principium, which is Cleon the first. The one who they have all been extracted from, but he goes further than that. He actually shows her this secret layer that we actually haven't seen yet of the way the clones work, which is you got your clones that exist, and then you got these backup clones, which you can fast forward to that part. (laughs) These backup clones are wired to understand all of your thoughts and memory so that they're up to date. It's like a firmware update, pretty much. And if anything goes wrong, this is like your iCloud backup of uh, Emperor here. So, if let's say Emperor Day dies on this walk of the spiral, Mm -hmm. this Emperor Day you see in the middle doing the little peace sign or the Caesar sign, uh, he's the one who takes over. Or let's say if Don is discovered to be visibly or noticeably different from his brothers, they will kill him and replace him with the Don that you see here. What, What did you think? Because this is the first time you probably would have actually noticed this as well. It's interesting. Um, you know, I would assume that this secondary clone would also have the same problems and defects as this Don would, though. Right? Like I, well, I that, feel like that yeah. wouldn't change. I had a question. How do you think that this happened? How is he different from the others? Is it like the is the sample of the like that they're extracting from Cleon the first? Is it no longer as strong? What's going wrong here in this cloning process? Yeah, I think it's something along those lines. Like, I feel like there's like this degradation in quality of these clones over time. I mean, I I, I see these different, even from the first episode, like we see these different mannerisms between um, Dusk, Day, and Dawn. And I think as we progress into this next generation of, uh, you know, the, the Empire, I feel like it's just becoming more and more prominent. Now this kid has even more issues um, in addition to the, uh, you know, questioning sort of, uh, you know, uh, 
I, I guess, mentality that his brother or his his older brother, whatever you want to call it, uh, the previous uh, Don had. Yeah. Well, Zora seems to be into Empire Dawn here, uh, and she wants to suggest a way out for him to escape because, according to her, if he escapes and is never found again, they'll just replace him and they won't have to go look for him, right? So that's the plan for her. She wants to take him to the Scar, and we find out that the Scar is actually the place, well, we kind of knew this already, but it's the part of Trantor that the tower fell upon and cracked mm -hmm. open. And she gives an interesting line about the Scar because she wants her him to see it. She says, for the Empire, the Scar represents a failure, but for the rest of us, for the rest of Trantor, it represents an opportunity. For the yeah. first time, we can see real clouds and stars, not servers, that to keep us complacent. So this place is like a very cyberpunky, Blade Runner-y, uh, very alive and pop. And she says it's crowded, but it's alive. You know, it's she yeah. really romanticizes this place so much so that she wants to take him on a tour, and he gives her this cloaked dragonfly drone thing. Uh, that will allow him to see the scar for the first time, which might be the first time in his life that he actually sees it, if I had yeah. to guess. I mean, I would uh, imagine that this is probably the first time he's seen anything outside of the palace, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, he seems to be very interested in life outside the palace, which is contrary to what Dusk says when he barges in on his room, not only to tell him that he missed a dinner bell, but to affirm that nothing outside the palace walls are relevant aside yeah. from them. They are. Trantor. Now, in my opinion, Dusk is on to him because he says, he starts off by saying, if you can turn subtitles on if they're not on. They are. He mentions punctuality, routine, respect. There may be practice traits to the everyman, but they are innate to a Cleon. So he yeah. is on to him. Like the, a Cleon should be you know, like a smooth operating machine, a well-oiled machine with all the Cleon habits. And he, this one is, I think Dusk is just completely onto him personally. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the last episode, we know he was onto him because he had uh, some woman spying on him. Remember? Uh, Don failed to sleep yes. with her or whatever, but yes. began to confide in her a bit. Okay. We progress now to what Zach calls a very light part of the episode, which <laughs> is, <laughs> which is, what well, we find out that Harry has, this is Harry Seldom's quantum consciousness protocol. And the reason there's an issue here is because there's an incomplete neural uplink that has occurred. Har Harry's in a perpetual death moment here. He's actually suffering because he has digitized his consciousness, but something is wrong and he's not replaying loops of the past, of the moment where he was murdered. So in opening up his eyes now, because Raish is not there, Mm -hmm. It seems to be that he is stuck in this protocol of that and Gale tries to bring him back to the present. Yeah. I would imagine it's kind of difficult as this quantum being to understand which is past, present, and future, right? And you would kind of need somebody to call into the void to kind of pull you out of that. <laughs> yeah. It's also kind of interesting to me that you, you, I guess you can, as you put it, call into the void and pull him out of this. Like, I didn't expect that to work. I, I was expecting there to be like you know, hey, you have to like manually shut this thing down and reboot, right? Like, you know, when something's wrong with your computer and all you got to do is restart it. Yeah. Well, we find right. out that Harry actually had a data unit implanted in his brain before he left Trantor and he synced it to a port hidden in Raisha's knife that recorded all of his thoughts and memories up to the point of his death. Yeah. That's crazy to me that he was able to, 
first and foremost, I don't know how that works, but we now understand that everything that occurred up to the knife that Magnus has to the door and was the key pretty much mm-hmm. to activating the ship was all planned by Harry in advance. And the interesting part is the plan is still somehow succeeding even though he he sort of snaps out of his death moment and his like pain when he yeah. moment, realizes it's been 34 years and that Gale is on the ship, not Raish, and that she wasn't meant to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the implant that he has is uh, a lot like, or had, I guess, seems a lot like what uh, the Empire has for his backup clones, right? Yeah, they're just that- constantly getting fed this information. So they've got to have something in them if they're up to date on everything that they hear, see, and know. Yeah, they they constantly do these parallels in the show between Harry and the Empire, and kind of it's kind of ironic that he criticizes them so much when he, a lot of his plan is rooted in the same type of thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in waking up now, thirty four years after the, his death event, right, mm-hmm. he realizes that the foundation should just be about facing their first crisis. So he knew that the first crisis was going to be occurring right about now, and that Raish was supposed to be on this uh, on the ship while Gale was supposed to actually be on the planet leading them there. He says, Louis Pyrene was good enough to get them through the settlement stage, but for what's coming next, someone stronger would be needed. Raish knew all of this, apparently. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense because now you kind of see how Salvor fits into this, right? Because somehow mm-hmm. the plan is still working because somebody stronger is there than Louis, and it's Salvor who's getting them through this first crisis, so to speak. Yeah, there's. Would you consider this two outliers or one outlier combined? You know, as a result of another. It's like you have one outlier in Terminus, and then you have Gale, who's the other one, right? Mm-hmm. And who knows who else is an outlier in this? Maybe Don is an outlier, uh, yeah. for being different, or maybe yeah. he's the catalyst for the downfall of the Empire. Who knows? Could be. Well. Harry finds out what happened because he's trying to get caught up to speed of what went wrong. Because as far as he has memories of, it's. He only knows what happened up till he died, but what he doesn't know is that after Raish murdered him, which was planned, uh, mm-hmm. Gale, they think the people's perception is that Gale helped Raish murder Harry, and so that was the reason that Raish put her on the escape pod instead of himself. And when Harry's informed uh, that Raish was executed, he actually, it's a very freaky scene. I've always thought that this scene is freaky when you hear Harry's digitized consciousness like screaming in pain. Oh, it was that was terrifying, dude. Which is him mourning, really. It's him yeah. mourning the the death of his son, right? Mm-hmm. But it turns out we Salvor is the outlier Harry couldn't predict. She's tied to the plan by being Gale and Raish's child, in my opinion. Yeah. Which I mean, I it, it makes sense. Right. Like I have to, I I buy it. Yeah. Uh, back on the Invictus, the crew of Salvor and some of the foundation members, they actually try to level the field and fight back by taking their weapons, but it doesn't work out for them. One of somebody gets killed, a foundation member gets killed, and Farah almost kills Salvor here, but Rowan talks her down. And this is where we realize that there is no plan to get off of this ship. They want to use the Invictus as this kamikaze terror operation. They want to crash it directly into Trantor and destroy the planet completely. I mean, I would want to just... Maybe, I don't know, use the weapons on board and destroy the planet that way. But, yeah, I mean, whatever floats your boat. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you mentioned it a moment ago. Um, maybe I missed it. But when Gail was talking to Harry, did you catch that 
uh, he said that she was supposed to be leading the first foundation. No, I did not catch that. Yeah. So, what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, I, I'm, I don't know if maybe his plan goes much farther than what's happening on Terminus. And maybe that's why they're going to Helicon. Maybe, maybe the plan is to create a secondary foundation as well. Could there be more than that? I don't know. But I mean, if, if you're going to make such a point to say the first, I imagine you're anticipating there being more hmm. than one. He seems to have this all mapped out in the way he wants it to go. But as we fast forward here a little bit, the ship now is shut down. And it makes me wonder when Harry, because the, the ship is tied to his consciousness. No way. It's activated through the race arrival protocol, which is Harry's quantum consciousness uh, mm -hmm. protocol, right? And when he disappears, the oxygen of the ship slowly starts to go away, which nearly kills Gale. And it made me wonder, was Quantum Harry about to commit like quantum suicide? <laughs> like, <laughs> quantum what was going murder. On yeah, what did you think <laughs> when like the ship was pretty much dying? Because if the ship dies, I'm assuming he goes down with the ship. Right. I mean, I would imagine so. Or like, I mean, I don't know, like, where this uploaded consciousness really exists. Is there like some server storage on the ship? Is there some greater place that you're gonna be able to send it to? Maybe you can, like, you know, like appear in different places. Not a hundred percent sure. As far as the ship shutting down, like I, I had mentioned earlier, you know, when something's bad, you know, you just need to do a reboot of it. And I kind of think that's 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 what happened here when when he just disappeared. It was like rebooting the whole ship. Yeah, well, he comes back and he sort of realizes that he owes Gale an explanation at this point. He begins to explain the things that are a mystery to Gale at this point, which we got a little bit of uh, clarity on because of Salvor's vision of Harry's conversation with Raish, right? Mm -hmm. But he, he talks to Gale and says, you know, his death was an essential element to the success of the plan. The foundation needed more than a man to inspire it. They needed a myth that could endure centuries, and it worked. They because they have apparently exceeded their mortality projections was around fifteen percent. Yeah, right? and his death was the galvanizing factor that led to the success of the foundation. But this leads to our comments about Harry about him being this egotistical guy who's created pretty much this godlike figure of himself. Mm -hmm. Where Gale calls him out and says, "Look, I know you're egotistical, but..." not to the point of wanting to be a god. And that's where we get the kind of bombshell notice that he has Lethe syndrome, which leads to a major cognitive decline. Can you look up Lethe syndrome? L-E-T-H-E -E syndrome when you get a chance? Yeah. Because the way he saw it was, you know, if I don't die, I have this major cognitive decline and I go from being the genius leader who took us to this planet to the the crackpot who's not able to, you know, who's pretty much a, um, a, a, not a crutch, but like a hindrance to the success of this, uh, of this plan. Yeah. I can't quite find, I mean, I, I see there's Lee or Lay, L-E-I-G-H syndrome. It's a severe neurological disorder that usually becomes apparent in the first year of life. I don't really see anything that pops up with the words, Lethe, though. Maybe that's something that we can identify if we uh, dive deeper into it, though. No worries. Well, Harry lied, actually. He says he lied about wanting to see Terminus. He was creating a narrative of wanting to go there. But instead, it seems that the plan all along was for him to die. Actually, his, the plan was for him to die 
on Trantor, but he says, the problem is I wanted to live. So, Gail calls him out when he is pretty much calling her a hypocrite, saying that she wanted recognition in such a way that would have put her family in danger. She calls him out and says, well, you're a hypocrite too, because if you truly, if this was truly just about psychohistory, you would have let Cleon kill you in the throne room and the plan would have still fallen into place. And he admits, he says, that's true, but I wanted to live. What did you think mm-hmm. about that? Because he then has to die on the ship. So was it just that he wasn't ready for his death? Mm. I probably, the, the thing that I have a hard time, I guess, wrapping my head around is, what is he now, right? Right, like if I if I kind of compare him to the Empire, right? I mean, they're both this being that is kind of living forever, if you will. Though, I mean, if I had to decide between which of these is more human, I would say the Empire is more human. Like, I would say the Empire has a soul over Harry here, who's now really just a computerized version of things. I mean, the Empire is like this, uh, yeah, genetic clone, but you're still, like, born, if you will. Like, you're still raised from the cellular level. And sure, there's, like, this data implant yeah, or you know, going into your brain so you can like learn things while you're just there. I but agree with you. It's like Harry's, Harry's like this AI protocol, you yeah. know, at this point where maybe it's deeper than that. We'll learn more about how far this being of his can go. Mm-hmm. But he is dead. There's no doubt he is dead at this point. Yeah. Um, we also learned that one of the part things that changed Harry's plan was Gail. It was actually she was the key factor because he knew. Once Raish, and he says Raish truly loved her, mm-hmm. Raish was never going to leave her. And so that he made Raish kill him to protect his plan. Yeah. Which leads to the whole hypocrite finger pointing situation. Yeah. But I mean, if he did have some really serious uh, syndrome, I mean, I guess that's more of like a two birds, one stone kind of thing, huh? Yeah. Well, in the same way that Gail's looking for explanations from Harry, Harry needs one from her. And that's. Why, how on earth or why were you in my cabin the day I was getting murdered? What went wrong? And how did you know something was wrong? And that's where we finally get a little bit of clarity, although it's not, we don't get like a detail of how this power of hers works, but she says that she could feel in the air a sense of doom that something was wrong. Like her body knew something before she did. And that's where we get these flashbacks to several moments in the show where when she knows the star, the star bridge is coming down or when she knows she's about to get arrested, she's mm-hmm. able to feel the future. And it, she's, this is not something that she predicts through math. It's something that she can feel intuitively, uh, which is something that Salvor has certainly inherited as well. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that intuition is something that we see in both of them quite a bit. I mean, Gail, uh, Gail early on, I mean, even with running to, to Harry's room, just because she felt like something was wrong, you know, she's counting primes and something is off. So, Well, she literally dodges a debris that pierces through the glass here in a way that there's only, she only could have known about it just intuitively. There was yeah. nothing to be able to predict that at that exact moment, a freaking bullet shaped debris piece would have ended her life right there. No, And it's like, no. she picks up this plate and you don't even know why she's picking up this glass plate right? Yeah. And does she pick it up because she can intuitively know what's going to happen next? You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't have like full clarity on this yet. I mean, I, I don't, 
again like i don't think it's that she knows right like she just like feels like it's like her body's reacting to this thing before it happens yeah it's it's interesting but that's how this episode ends is with this realization that she has this ability and we've all we have been kind of teased along the entire season to know this about her and to know this about Savor. and it's interesting to as the episode ends to think about how is this going to come into play in future episodes with Salvor, what's going on with the Invictus and with Gale and what's going to happen when they get to Helicon because we still don't know what the plan is for when they arrive to Helicon, which is really cool, by the way. They Helicon's, uh, their dark, the dark sun or the dark, whatever, the dark star that surrounds Helicon. Yeah. This is debris field that keeps the entire planet hidden from view and protects it, I guess, from the Empire in a way. It looks pretty epic. Right? It, it does. does. I, I mean... Not a safe place to uh, to fly towards or leave, I guess, with all of that. But yeah, it looks pretty epic. Yeah, I would say so. But that concludes the episode of episode seven titled Mysteries and Martyrs. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good one. Final thoughts, Zach. Give me your quick essay here. My quick essay. I, I Again, I'm happy that Gail is back. That's the one thing with this, this first season that I... I don't love that much is that we don't get a ton of Gaelite. Like I want more of her in this. I, I find her character much more interesting than Salvor. But how about you? I love this episode. I think it just we're ramping up in such a way and seeing like the way I'm I'm big on political intrigue, so I love the storyline with Day on the Maiden and uh just the mystery of Harry and, and Gail's storyline of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I'm least interested in what's going on with Salvor and, and the Invictus at this point, but um, yeah. but nonetheless, it's it's just it's nice. It's cool to see the chess pieces coming together, and also interesting to see the situation with Don on Trantor and what happens there with Azura. Yeah, she she seems a little pushy to me with you know wanting to to get away with Don. Mm. Maybe she's in love. Well, wow. you'll have to find yeah. out if you tune in to episode eight of our foundation coverage and beyond. And we want to thank you for tuning in. Once again, we want to remind you that we also have on top of our foundation season one coverage, season two will be premiering on Friday, July 14th. And we will continue our Black Mirror season six coverage as well as our hijack coverage on Apple TV, which is currently number one, supplanting King Ted Lasso and several other fantastic shows that Apple TV holds. And as always, if you want to subscribe to our newsletter and join the Soapbox Club, you can hit the link or, you know, peruse through the links in our description. They're there for a reason. And if you would like to support the production of the episodes on this show, we uh, thank you in advance, but we don't pressure you to do so. So if you are enjoying the content, leave us a review, a like, a five-star review. And um, yeah, that's all I got to say, Zach. Do you want to do your, your specialty here or do we oh. get, are we missing some categories? Today? We haven't touched on the categories just yet. So let's get through our uh, top three categories as always. Who is mm-hmm. your favorite character of the episode? Mm. I'm going to go Harry here. Okay. That's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't picture you picking Harry. I'm going to go with Brother Day. Uh, I just liked how, uh, how smart his, uh, his moves seem to be. Yeah, I, I agree. The, his political moves to do the spiral. Like, I'm really excited to watch episode eight to see him embark on that journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. How about the uh, best scene in the episode? 
I think it's the end where you're having this whole back and forth between Harry and Gail and you're finding out that she can feel the future. Yeah, I literally wrote Gail coming to the realization that she can feel the future. Yeah. Best line of the episode. I've got two that I've written down. There are a lot. It feels like Day is always in the lead with everything in this show. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he's kind of being sassy with uh, Demerzel and he goes, oh, mother? I'm not aware of that term being the motherless atrocity that I am. You know, like the soulless <laughs> atrocity that I am. Like yeah. he, he's a great character, man. And then you have uh, Halima's line and you're saying, you're the reverberations of a dead man's ego. Yeah, that is, uh, that's one of my two. Uh, the other one I liked was uh, Brother Dusk saying, we are Trantor, nothing outside these walls are relevant. Yeah, yeah. It was it's great. One. Love seeing that uh, little, I guess, mindset that they have. But yeah. that covers our categories for today. So to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Foundation by Story Archives. You can find this podcast anywhere you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We are on YouTube at Soapbox Podcast Network. So you can find a whole bunch of different playlists for the different shows that we've been covering over there. You can visit our website at soapbox.house. Email us at contact at soapbox.house. And again, there is a link in the description to the newsletter. So please go ahead and subscribe to that. There's quite a few people that have already signed up for it. So we're super happy to see you there. And we hope to see more of you there shortly.